The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Shrax. What is Shrax? Well, here to tell us what Shrax is and why it matters is Chris Miglino. He is the chief executive officer and the founder. They are based in Beverly Hills, California, but he is joining us here in our 1130 studios. Tell us, uh, Chris, thanks for being here first. Uh, thanks for having me. What exactly is Shrax? I understand the, the, you know, the underlying thing, right? Digital marketing and consumer data distribution management platform but I have no idea what that means. So what we do is we aggregate data on specific audiences. So we, we work in certain verticals and then we aggregate data around those verticals. So an example is we're in the consumer packaged good business. We aggregate data on people that buy certain types of products in big box retailers. We aggregate the information about those consumers and then we put into put them into silos and then we sell access to that data back to marketers. We do the, we do similar thing with uh, the medical business. We have every doctor uh, in the United States mapped down to their cell phone, to their home computers, to their office computers. And then we sell access to that data to big pharma companies that want to reach those particular oncologists, cardiologists, neurologists, and so on. And we have that for around five different verticals that we do. How hard is it for you to access the data? Well, it takes a long time to build specific data sets because you need to build them over time. So we, when we start a particular vertical, we have to slowly start to build them and we buy a lot of data at first. Yeah. And then data is, we begin to aggregate the data ourselves and then we own that data and resell it. The reason why I ask is I'm thinking about Facebook and the recent data privacy concern issues right. and uh, increasing talk of regulation of the data disclosures. Is that going to make your life more difficult or do you think that that ship has sailed in the contract of people deciding to put their information uh, online for everybody? in return for getting free access to some of these services? I think consumers are more aware about the privacy issues now than they ever have been. I think in the, in the past, uh, consumers haven't minded giving up their data in exchange for free access. But I think now with the Equifax and with the, uh, the Facebook breaches, people are very aware of the value of their data. And that's why around a year ago, uh, we started working on a platform that's going to allow consumers to own their own data. So you as a consumer will be able to own your own information and then people will access that information and you'll get paid for that data. Um, it's called Big Token. So uh, Big Token is a platform, uh, bigtoken.com is a platform that allows people to put their information in, validate data, and then as marketers want to access that information, they pay 
to access the data, but instead of the money going to the big Oracle's experience axioms of the world, it goes direct to the consumer. Let's say Lisa goes to an automobile showroom and she's interested in a particular car, mm -hmm. decides to take a test drive, even goes to an auto show. Right. Is that information, can you connect that information with maybe what Lisa would do online looking at various automobile products? Very much so. So we have an auto vertical and within our auto vertical, we're providing software into the dealership level where if somebody comes in and takes a test drive, they put in the name, email address, phone number of that consumer. And once we have that data, we can pretty much find out everything else about the consumer. We can then do a cross map between the cell phone, the email address, and that can help us find your browser. We can find multiple devices off of those browsers um, and just map you in general. And within 24 hours, you could start seeing ads for the car that you just test drove. I'm, I'm really confused because the Facebook results that we just got seem to show that people don't care at all about privacy because uh, they showed, uh, you know, revenue growth that was the most since 2015 and people seem to be uh, flocking to the site regardless of any privacy concerns. I'm just wondering, why would anybody uh, start to go through extra passwords and extra forms, et cetera, if they're frankly, willing to give away their information and data for free right now. Because consumers are not aware about the amount of money that is being generated off of them. How and much money per person do you think is generated a, off of them? A good consumer living in New York City, uh, and you know, remember, you're being tracked everywhere on your phone, so they're tracking you from where you live to where you work. So they're watching you from the Upper East Side to Bloomberg Studio, and they're tracking everything that you're doing. So, so how much am I worth? <laughs> anywhere, anywhere from just on the digital advertising side, not the not uh, consumer marketing research or direct mail or anything like that. Anywhere from two hundred to two thousand dollars a month. So it's a lot of money. Now, if somebody was going to give that money to you. Would you go sign up to do it? That's why we put bigtoken.com up and we've had thousands of people sign up to, for their data. But then what about Amazon or what about some of these other uh, companies that can gather this for free? They wouldn't then be as willing to pay the additional cost to me. Correct. And then you as a consumer will start to filter out what you're willing to uh, look at. And we're going to give you uh, browser plugins and tools that are going to help you get rid of ads that are not paying to access your information. And you might even get a check. <laughs> well, you. I just, I, I have to wonder how much. I mean, Amazon, Google, these, the Facebook, the data sets, that's where they live and die. So they've got to be fighting back, no? I mean, you know, we're at the beginning of this. We've been working on it for a year. And uh, I think that those companies are about to, see big competition in this area they've they've ha they've owned this data set for a long time consumers have not fought back to own their own data and now they're going to be ready to do that they they just haven't had the tools to be able to do it they couldn't go anywhere sign up and then start getting getting money yeah well um i, I gotta say i would love to earn two thousand extra dollars yeah, a month. Chris Miglino, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Chris Miglino, mm -hmm. Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Shrax, a digital marketing and consumer data distribution company, which is based in Beverly Hills, California. But he decided to come to New York to our eleven three zero studios, despite the rain and the clouds and the chilly air. 
The leaders of North and South Korea have agreed to pursue a peace agreement in historic talks. Here to tell us more about this is Hal Brands, Henry Kissinger, Distinguished Professor for Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He joins us from Baltimore. Hal Brands, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I wonder if you could just describe what you believe uh, is likely to happen next between the leaders of North and South Korea. Well, I think what you'll see is that there may be some effort to put flesh on the bones of the very skeletal agreement that was reached at the summit, which was basically aspirational in terms of working toward uh, a formal end to the war in the Korean Peninsula and the eventual denuclearization of the peninsula. But those goals are, are quite gauzy right now, and so any next steps would have to deal with uh, fleshing out the specifics of how those goals might be pursued. So, Al, you know, there we need to whip out the scorecard here because there are a lot of people that are either giving tr- uh, credit to President Trump for uh, navigating or pushing Kim Jong-un to this point. People are giving credit to the South Korean president. People are giving credit to China. Who sort of pushed the leaders of North and South Korea to this point, in your view? Well, really, it was the leaders of North Korea who pushed the United States and South Korea to this point. It was the North Koreans who came up with the idea for a meeting between uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un. And and one of the really difficult uh, analytical points in dealing with this situation is figuring out precisely what the North Korean calculus is. There's surely a desire to ease the economic pressure from the U.S. sanctions, but there may also be a calculation this is simply a smart tactical way of reducing pressure while the North completes its nuclear arsenal. Now, in addition, there was a joint statement. It's called the uh, Pan Moon Jam Declaration, calling for the restart of reunions of families separated by the Korean War. Will that accelerate further agreements? I think it's useful as an atmospheric, and it may lead to additional uh, atmospherics in the sense of Uh, suspending propaganda broadcasts across the border and and things like that. Uh, It has relatively little connection to the more substantive issues at hand, which would be the nuclear program and and the state of war that still exists between the North and the South. Uh, But it is perhaps hopeful as a sign of, of a broader thawing between the two countries. You know, Professor, one thing that, that struck me, aside from the menu, the highly symbolic menu of the uh, meeting that took place between the North and South Korean leaders, uh, it struck me that the whole procession was not broadcast on North Korean television. I know this is a small point, but to me it indicated that there was not an opening up of North Korea. Uh, was this significant to you? And kind of what can we look at going forward to know whether this is in good faith or not? I think looking for an opening up of the North Korean political system uh, is probably unrealistic at this point. Uh, The Kim family regime is interested first and foremost in its own survival, and I think it understands that any meaningful opening up of the political system would would jeopardize that. And so everything that the regime is doing is a tactical move to secure its own power. So any opening up of the regime would presumably be something that would come – much, much farther down the road and would probably be almost against the will of the Kim family. If there is an agreement that is reached, what would this do to relations between the United States and China? Well, it all depends on what the nature of the agreement is. I think uh, we're having a little bit of whiplash right now because for about a year, the fear of most countries in the region and around the world was that the Trump administration was going to get the United States into a nuclear war with North Korea. I think the fear now is that the United States might conclude 
uh, a deal that would ab- actually be too advantageous to North Korea. And so the, the critical elements from the United States' side will, to be insu- will be to ensure that any deal with the North doesn't prejudice the U.S. alliance with South Korea or the broader U.S. posture in, in the region. Uh, China obviously would like to see a different sort of deal, one that would lead to a retraction of American presence in Northeast Asia. So can you put this into context of why, then, this is so important? Well, this is the, the single, this is the crisis spot that is most likely to lead to nuclear war right now. Uh, any conflict between the United States and North Korea would be uh, of unbelievable lethality, even if it did not cross the nuclear threshold. But from everything we know about North Korean uh, military doctrine, it quite easily could escalate into the nuclear realm. And so if it is possible to negotiate some sort of agreement that would lower tensions, that would be a good thing in and of itself. Uh, if it's possible to do so in a way that leads to the rolling back of the North Korean nuclear arsenal, that would also be very useful in terms of reducing the nuclear threat both to the United States and its allies. That, that said, I'm still somewhat skeptical that this is ultimately what will come out of this process. Can the United States, Japan, and our allies live with a nuclear-armed North Korea? We would prefer not to, but yes, I think we can live with it. Uh, if, if the alternative were, for instance, launching a preventive war to prevent that. Um, the United States has confronted this sort of problem before. We worried very much about what it would mean to face a nuclear Soviet Union or a nuclear China during the Cold War. And in both cases, we were ultimately able to live with it, albeit in a very dangerous, intense way. And I think if we were put to it, we could probably do that again. So uh, I want to I want to go back to the menu since it was much parsed over and um, and and mouthwatering to read about what they ate. But uh, what was interesting to me was that the menu angered Japan again. Uh, the menu that uh, the the for the feast that North Korean leader and South Korean leaders uh, ate. What do you make of that? Uh, I, I don't make a lot of it. I think <laughs> this is probably about the seventeenth on the list of things that's most important in, in terms of assessing. Uh, the, the prospects of the negotiating process. And, and so, I, I, you know, this is a, a region where history looms very large, and so there, there are constantly uh, seemingly small issues that are causing frictions between uh, not just the U.S. and its adversaries, but sometimes between U.S. allies and sometimes between Japan and North Korea. Uh, and so I, I think that is, is noteworthy and, and perhaps worth reporting, but, but probably relatively low on the list of things that will determine the the success or failure of this initiative. So uh, South Korea's shrimp surprise for Donald Trump last year and the dessert uh, this time around, not the biggest thing on your list. Hal Brands, thank you so much for joining us. Hal Brands, Henry Kissinger, distinguished professor at Johns Hopkins University and a Bloomberg View columnist. Uh, Definitely some of the imagery coming out of the Korean Peninsula is really striking of the leaders holding hands, taking one step into the north, one step into the south, marking the end to this, what is it, seven-decade-long conflict uh, that has been uh, keeping a lot of families apart on the Korean Peninsula. Yes, and that's uh, set to change, at least according to this uh, communique. Although unclear whether those families will, in fact, get reunited anytime soon. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
Big tech is driving the train in U.S. equity markets these days. And to talk a little bit about what we've seen out of earnings so far, as well as what to expect, is Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager at Manulife Asset Management in Boston. He oversees, among other funds, the John Hancock Balanced Fund, which has about uh, nearly $2 billion of assets. And Michael, I was looking in uh, four of your top five biggest holdings in that fund, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. As a result of the earnings that we have seen so far, have you decided to either add to your current holdings of any of those companies or pair some of the uh, some of the assets? Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. So, I, it, I think when you look at this earnings period, you know, there's obviously we had a little bit of disappointment out of Google, and then essentially very strong results out of the rest of the players there. I think when you look at the tech space. You know, whether it's these these newer platform companies like a Google or a Facebook, I mean, they continue to have these enormous secular tailwinds. And I think it's also interesting if you look at it, some of these more what you would associate with legacy IT names like Microsoft or Cisco, you know, those companies are obviously are also doing quite well right now as they've been able to, to manage this transition to more of a cloud-based computing versus on-premise type systems. Well, Michael, does this mean that you wouldn't invest really new money in a technology company unless it had a cloud offering? Well, we, you know, that has been a big part of our holdings is that you do want to have these companies that are aligned with that themes or else you're fighting an enormous headwind. I mean, one name out there that's been struggling quite a bit is Oracle. That's not a name that we own in our portfolio. And that's a name where when you look at their cloud business, I mean, they're just getting lapped by everybody else. Uh, so that, that that would be a tough space to get invested in today. But, Michael, the reason why I ask is because when we talk to a lot of investment managers and we ask them, you know, when was the last time that you rearranged your portfolio? They say, actually, we've held it the same for about a year. I'm wondering, is it the same with you? Or, you know, do you look at these earnings and then decide, you know what, uh, Amazon seems like they're super solid. Let's add more there. And you know what, Apple, we're a little bit concerned about the end of the super phone uh, of the the super cycle of the smartphones we're going to pair back there are you doing any of those calculations right now so it's a fair question i mean that's part of managing a portfolio is you get these names that'll bounce hard after earnings or they might sell off hard after earnings and maybe that doesn't justify exiting or entering new positions but what you do is trade your names up and down in terms of the weight of the portfolio you know, you look at something like Apple over the last couple of years, uh, you know, that stock has been meaningfully higher than it has been today. Uh, and if you look at the weight of our portfolio, it has moved around in terms of the weight of the portfolio over the last 12 months. Michael, in managing the uh, the John Hancock balance portfolio as well as the balanced fund, uh, what would you like to see happen in terms of rebalancing? Because some of the names in the fund have performed so well, you've got to maintain a balance so that you don't end up with these outsized positions that could come back and bite you. Yeah, so we initiated uh, an overweight position in energy uh, kind of the second half of last year, and that proved to be a little bit early. Yet in the last month or so, uh, it seems like that that positioning is starting to come around for us. We've had some really outsized winners there in terms of names like ConocoPhillips uh, or names like Suncor and Shell. So those names have been doing quite well for us. And I still think that, you know, even though they've had a big, meaningful bounce in the last couple of months here, I do still think there's a long runway there. So when you look at the S&P 500 at roughly 25% of the S&P in the tech sector, 
uh, at kind of a mid-single digit, 6 or 7%, I do think that you're going to see energy to continue to work here through the end of the year. You know, Michael, I'd love to just zoom out a little bit and get your feeling on what the narrative should be for this earnings season. Uh, by some measures, it's the biggest uh, volume of earnings beats ever. Uh, by others, there are huge warning signs that this is perhaps as good as it gets. Where do you fall on uh, on the different narratives that are competing for attention right now? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, if expectations were very high going into this earnings period, but yet if you look at the results, I mean, they've blown away the results. I think the earnings are, you know, it's been like an 8% surprise on the consensus number this quarter thus far, I believe is the number. And, you know, you look at some of the things that are going on that you could frame as a negative right now with the 10-year yield crossing or hovering around 3% and oil up meaningfully, which is a tax on the U.S. consumer essentially. Uh, you know, I think somebody said it best the other day when they said we're all looking for a silver bullet and, and exactly why the market has been weaker than what expects. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's earnings that drive markets. And you might have these short periods of disconnect where the market doesn't keep up with earnings growth. But I think the S&P 500 here at, you know, 16 and a half, a little below 17 times earnings, I think it's very attractive. And by the end of the year, I do expect the market's going to finish higher from here. Michael, you mentioned energy. What about other commodities? Uh, noted investments may be in countries such as Australia. Yeah, so outside of energy, you know, we do have a, a small position in Franco. So we have some exposure to gold. Uh, you know, I think when you look at the commodity space, really right now, our focus has been on oil and names that are more associated with it, because the, the, the disconnects between what the commodity has done since last summer versus what these stock prices have done, we just feel like that that's, that's offering us the best risk reward right now. What's your most contrarian bet right now? Most contrarian bet right now, I guess, and Starbucks is a name which uh, we've owned in the portfolio for uh, over a year now, probably 18 months or so, and that's a name that reported earnings last night. That's a name that continues to be out of favor with investors. I do think when you listen to the call last night, there was some things that a bull could continue to, to be positioned around, and that the last two months of the first quarter, they had north of a 3% comp in the U.S., you know, as we look forward to the rest of the year, April might be a bit bumpy because it is a difficult comp with the unicorn frappuccino that they had last year. Uh, but I think that stock has been very out of favor. The multiple is very, very compressed to where it's been. And obviously, it's still a fantastic brand. Shares of Starbucks down a little bit more than one and a half percent right now, Michael. Uh, what happens if a 10 year stays at three percent? Does that change your investment thesis? It doesn't. Uh, you know, it's funny when you, it's obviously a big psychological factor when you get the 10-year yield up to, to a big round number like 3% that we haven't seen in a while. But as I speak to management teams that we own in the portfolio or prospective companies that we're thinking about investing, I don't hear any of them coming back and saying, "Well, if if the yield hits on the 10-year hits three, we're doing something different." I mean, it's it, this is really an environment where stock picking matters a lot more going forward than it has the last couple of years. And you just need to be focused on those company-specific stories. Uh, again, I think 3% is more of a psychological number more than anything. Thanks very much for being with us. Michael Scanlon, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, Manulife Asset Management, based in Boston. Of course, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore, helping to manage the John Hancock Balance Fund and the Balanced Portfolio. Total assets, he's helping be responsible for uh, more than... Uh, well, nearly $2 billion. We've got much more coming up on Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. 
Exxon posted its weakest first quarter of output since 1999. Chevron, on the other hand, surpassed every first quarter profit and production production estimate out there. Uh, as a response, Exxon shares down 3.4%, uh, while Chevron shares up more than 1%. Joining us to understand the tale of two gas giants, Fernando Valle. He's oil and gas analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Fernando, can you explain what Exxon did wrong and what Chevron did right? Sure. Hi, guys. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I think there are two key issues with Exxon. The first is you had some uh, time, timely issues. Uh, you had the earthquake in Papua New Guinea that impacted production. You had uh, oil, higher oil prices actually take some production away uh, because uh, you have uh, production sharing contracts where higher prices actually decrease your entitlement volumes. And then part of it is just the investment profile. I mean, Exxon had been curtailing investments since the oil price crisis. They cut, cut their capex to $22 billion. And I think what the new CEO has recognized is that that is not a sustainable strategy. Uh, and they're, they're actually now raising their capex to $30 billion going forward. Uh, which is why, for example, they haven't returned to the buybacks. Uh, Chevron, on the other hand, they had a couple major projects that they've been uh, funding for a very long time that have finally started to come on stream. Uh, Gorgon uh, liquefied natural gas in Australia. Uh, Wheatstone uh, also liquefied natural gas project in Australia. Both of those projects started up in 2017, and they've been ramping, and they've been a major contributor to both production and the earnings beat. Uh, Fernando, the um, percentage of production that is uh, that is done by large the large oil companies like Exxon Mobil, like Chevron, isn't that going down? It it was. Uh, shale was definitely taking uh, market share in the global oil market, uh, but as your production, as I mentioned, a lot of these projects that were funded in the 2010 to 2014 period and are now coming to fruition, they're actually going to help uh, big oil recapture some market share. Uh, who is actually seeding market share in this time of the cycle is OPEC, as you had uh, Saudi Arabia curtail their production, Venezuela falling, uh, and also non-US, no, non-OPEC. So you had your Colombia's, your China's, your Mexico's, where production is going down because these oil prices have forced them to cut investments and their aging fields are actually going down in production very sig- significantly. Is that why uh, investors aren't necessarily interested in the stocks? Because if you're not giving back the money to the shareholders, and other companies are, like ConocoPhillips doing a share buyback, why would you buy the shares of companies that aren't going to reward the shareholder? I think that's uh, that's very fair in the short term. I think, though, when you look at what Exxon is doing, there's a, a recognition that their portfolio can't compete with shale. And that's why they've gone out there and they've bought uh, – more Papua New Guinea, more Brazilian pre-salt. Uh, they bought uh, Permian assets. And so if you look at all the five pillars that they outlined in March, all those five pillars have been acquired or discovered since 2014. Their old investments, your XTOs, your Russian oil and gas, your Canadian oil sands, they don't work in this world anymore. So you need to go out and revamp. And it's a painful period of recognition, but it's something that I think it's necessary for you to compete long term and, and you're becoming a going concern. 
you know, one thing that we were talking about before the segment, you were noting that it has to do with the composition of the underlying assets between Exxon and Chevron. Exxon holds about 50% of its assets as natural gas produce, producing uh, utilities, whereas Chevron uh, focuses more on oil. Brent crude uh, rose substantially in the first quarter, whereas natural gas actually declined if you look at prices. I'm just wondering, uh, has Exxon talked at all about increasing its exposure uh, to crude or sort of changing the mix of its business at all. Yeah, that's something, those five pillars, when you look at it, uh, a lot of it is uh, deep water. So Guyana and Brazil, deep water, oil. Uh, and then the other two major projects are uh, liquefied natural gas, which is internationally, which are again, oil linked. So they'll, they'll help that mix. And then the Permian. Uh, so those five pillars will definitely change the, the pricing from being more U.S. gas linked into more international pricing and oil, and that should help their resilience because, as you guys probably know, the the Marcellus, the Permian, they're going to keep our our natural gas prices in this country very low for a very long time. I want to pick up on what Lisa said having to do with the factors that affect the actual price of oil and the way in which fossil fuel, whether it be natural gas or shale oil or you know deep water, affect it. But isn't it also that Venezuela... Mexico, two of the big oil-producing regions. You got Pemex with cutbacks in potential farm participation, and then you got the general Venezuela story. Isn't that going to affect the price of oil? That that certainly has, and that's what we were mentioning about OPEC seeding market share, uh, with Venezuela being one of the, the, you know, going down from almost three million barrels to under one point seven million barrels a day now. Uh, Mexico has also had its issues, but. Uh, again, when you look at this country going from t- to 10.6 million barrels a day, there's a lot of production co- coming online, and there is a question mark of what happens in 2020. But I think one of the the, the parts that, that investors sometimes miss is that Saudi Arabia and Russia have both curtailed production, and so there is some spare capacity that can come online. Uh, although demand could eventually outpace that, depending on oil prices. Thank you very much for being with us. Fernando Valle is oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.